Welcome to The Breakdown with James Lankford, where Oklahoma Senator James Lankford discusses policy issues in Congress. Thank you for listening today. This is The Breakdown. This is Senator James Langford. Welcome back again to another episode of The Breakdown, while we try to take some of the complicated issues of the day and make them a little simpler, but also go a whole lot deeper than what you can typically do in a 30-second something on the news. Uh, as all of you are aware, the House of Representatives is in the middle of an impeachment inquiry uh, against President Trump. There's a lot of debate. This actual episode of The, of the Breakout breakdown, excuse me, is not about uh, the details of the impeachment, whether they should, whether they shouldn't. It is the process of what's happening. We've had so many questions from people asking the question, if the House chooses to impeach the president, what happens next? What does this look like in the Senate? It's so extremely rare in American history to have the impeachment of a president of the United States. A lot of folks are saying, what can be done? And quite frankly, I see a lot of the late night uh, TV folks on all the different stations uh, with guests hypothesizing what the Senate could and couldn't do. And uh, we thought it'd be a good time to be able to break it down and say, what actually will happen and where are things going? I have with me as my guest today, an expert in this field, someone who's actually gone through it. Uh, Alan Freeman is actually with me here, and uh, Alan is the uh, Senate parliamentarian from 1987 until 1995, uh, and then again from 2001 to 2012. Uh, now, the parliamentarians are nonpartisan. They all come up through the ranks of uh, serving on the staff around the, the, the parliamentary work that's happened. He's been a chief parliamentarian under both Republicans and under Democrats. Uh, retired now, but uh, since his retirement, is doing a lot of lecturing, a lot of writing. In fact, he is the editor of Riddick's Senate Procedure, uh, which is like the official like Bible of Senate procedures that's out there. Uh, he's the key editor of this. You've been around this a long time. That's a lot of minutia, Alan, for you to be able to work through. And so glad you're joining us here today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to come here and try to shed some light on uh, Aspects of Senate procedure that are not necessarily uh, clear to your average normal human being, uh, nor are they clear to your average normal senator. <laughs> That's correct. And, and sometimes not even clear to your average normal Senate parliamentarian if there is such a thing. Yeah. And, and there's not many parliamentarians mm-hmm. that have been around in the 20th century. Uh, no, there, there haven't been. Elizabeth McDonough is the uh, – I believe she's the sixth – yeah, in just the last hundred years. That's correct. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty remarkable, the, the longevity of the parliamentarians are there. But they're, the, you, you've served as kind of the, the rule keeper, <clears throat> scorekeeper, whatever it may be, to be able to go through the process and be able to look at it and say, giving advice and counsel to every senator as you're at the dais to be able to say what can be done, what can be done. And it goes back through 200-plus years of history and a process, including as we go all the way back to impeachment. I have a lot of folks that have asked me about impeachment in particular – and have said, okay, what's the rule for this? Where does this come from? Well, it comes originally from the United States Constitution, obviously. And let me just read that to you. Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution says, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Uh, When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. I know there's a lot more around that, but let me try to unpack that just a little bit. Uh, I've had folks that have already said to me, well, if the president's impeached, he's removed. Uh, and that is a giant misnomer. Impeachment is not the action that removes the president. It's actually a decision of the Senate. Impeachment is something the House does. Literally, it would be a recommendation from the House that they believe the president should be removed. But the removal of any president has to be determined by the Senate of the United States. And it's not just a simple majority, is it? No, it's not a simple majority. It's a multi-step process. 
as you said, impeachment is an act that the House uh, undertakes with respect to um, the president, the vice president, and other civil officers uh, in, in the government. And that act on the House floor requires a simple majority, but that's simply step one. Uh, many people have been impeached uh, who have not been removed from office because the Senate has not convicted, uh, most, notice, most notably two presidents, um, President Andrew Johnson in 1868 and President Bill Clinton in 1999. So impeachment is step one. Uh, conviction in the Senate by a vote of two-thirds of the senators present is what's required by the Constitution to remove an impeached official. We did have a president, Richard Nixon, leave office to avoid impeachment. Right. Uh, And and so— He had an overwhelming vote to start the impeachment inquiry. There were 410 votes to begin the impeachment inquiry from the House of Representatives. But what happened from there? Well, I think he saw the handwriting on the wall. uh, And and the stories go that a a group of Senate Republicans led by Barry Goldwater uh, understood that the sentiment in the country had turned against— uh, President Nixon, despite the fact that he'd been overwhelmingly reelected um, in the previous election cycle, but that the case was being made uh, apparently convincingly to a substantial uh, majority of the country, and that President Nixon's uh, support in the all-important uh, forum, the Senate, uh, was had eroded and was continuing to erode, and we had senators like Barry Goldwater who understood. The gravity of the situation understood the significance of the Senate's role, understood the the tension that the framers built into the Constitution, and um, he, he traveled down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue from Capitol Hill to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue uh, to chat with uh, with the President of the United States and gave him um, the news. Right, his advice, really, his counsel. So it is an interesting mm-hmm. thing. Uh, Richard Nixon, as you've mentioned before, was not impeached, but he actually left office. Bill Clinton was impeached, but remained in office office, the same as Andrew Johnson did in 1868. There's a misnomer as well Mm -hmm. because some people think that impeachment is only about the president and the vice president. But impeachment goes all the way back to the 1700s. In the earliest days, it began with judges and with uh, cabinet officials and such. Well, actually, the first person impeached or the first person that the House of Representatives wanted to impeach and did impeach was Senator Blunt of Tennessee, um, raising lots of constitutional and institutional questions. Uh, The Senate looked at that and said, you can't impeach this man. We will, however, expel him. Right. Uh, so each, each body has their own rules on, on what the members are there, but the House can't kick out a senator and the senators can't kick out a House. Because I can assure you, if we had votes in the Senate right now about kicking out some House members, we would absolutely take those votes. Well, of course, the problem with that is is the impeachment process begins in the House. Right. That's correct. So, so they get to start the uh, – they start the mistrief. Right. right. Start, so the, the Senate literally can't remove a president, a judge, uh, and anyone at that point. They can't remove them unless the House goes first. This is part of the checks and balances built in our system. But the House can't just vote – and remove someone who's not a House member. Obviously, they can remove a House member by their own vote, but they couldn't remove a judge or someone in the cabinet or I- anyone, uh, president, obviously, unless there's a vote first in the House. And then the House actually physically comes over to the Senate and makes their case why they believe that that person should be removed. That's correct. The House starts the process um, when they adopt articles of impeachment on the floor of the House. And that's just the beginning of the process. Then they notify the Senate. 
that articles of impeachment have been adopted against such and such official, uh, at which point the Senate's impeachment rules do kick in. Right. Oh, so then, then the big question, let me back up a half a step that we jumped ahead a little bit on just in my perspective, and that is impeach for what? Um, because the Constitution, as it lays out the argument of what a, a president can be impeached for, for instance, it's pretty clear on uh, for a president just making this simple statement. The judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than normal removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, pending according to the law. It breaks down uh, this simple statement then in Article 2, Section 4. The president, vice president, all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, originally when this was debated in the seven, late 1700s, before it was finalized, there was a lot of debate about what would be the the action of the House and the Senate when the Senate's going to remove someone and the House is going to impeach. Could it be for what they call maladministration? Uh, could it be failure to perform their duty? Uh, could it be something like that? And they had a lot of different drafts with different terms on it, but they eventually scratched all of those things and came back to this simple statement, impeachment would be a conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The challenge is for parliamentarian, how do you define what's a high crime or misdemeanor? Well, it's a nice, simple statement. And you said the challenge for parliamentarians is how to decide what other high crimes and misdemeanors are. Of course, we like to defer to to, uh, the senators. That's correct. They get to pick. So really, it it could be anything. Uh, Well, it could be anything that the House has begun, that the House alleges is the grounds for removal. And, and the House alleges that and a majority of the House members vote uh, that such and such behavior is an, is, is an impeachable act. Right. And we've heard pundits speculate that, well, first of all, it doesn't have to be a criminal act. Right. Let's say the president decides to take a vacation and move to Switzerland. And the, he or she is going to stay in Switzerland, uh, good skiing there. Uh, it's, it's lovely in the winter and, you know, as I'm, I'm told, it's pretty nice in the summer. Yeah. So perhaps the president will just simply be absent. Uh, there's no crime in that. If you or I did it, there's no crime in that. But some might look at that act and say the president is derelict in his or her duty. Uh, the president simply is not seeing to it that the laws are faithfully administered. Right. And so it, impeachment is really an organic process. Right. Uh, what the House believes is an impeachable offense uh, and that uh, suspicion supported by a vote of a majority of the House members and then uh, presumably that suspicion, that charge, that allegation uh, ratified by the vote of two-thirds of the senators present that, well, yes, Switzerland is a wonderful place for the average American tourist, but it's not a fair place for the president to be administering the laws. But again, it would be up to the decision of the House of Representatives to determine that is something significant enough they would consider that a high crime or misdemeanor at that point and then make the decision, go through the process and actually have the vote. Then it would come to the Senate. It's a whole different thing. The very first impeachment of a president was President Andrew Johnson, uh, 1868. Uh, He was uh, Abraham Lincoln's vice president. He was not his vice president in the first term. Uh, He was his vice president for the second term. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Abraham Lincoln didn't pick Andrew Johnson. Uh, Andrew Johnson was actually a Democrat from Tennessee. Uh, And you've got a Republican uh, President Abraham Lincoln uh, from Illinois. And the convention put the two of them together thinking that we need to have unity at the backside of the Civil War. So we'll have a Southern Democrat who was pro-Union. Uh, but a Southern Democrat vice president with a Republican uh, from the North that was obviously passionate about the Union put the two tickets together. 
but he was not exactly a beloved figure. In fact, even at the swearing-in of Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, when they were sworn in, uh, Andrew Johnson stood up to give his vice president speech at the beginning, which we don't do anymore, but at that time they gave their vice president speech. He was so drunk on the day that he was being sworn in that they literally had to come grab him by the coattails and give him a little tug and say, that's enough, you need to stop. Uh, because he was slurring his words so much and kept going on and on and on, and then he had an ongoing battle with Congress, and uh, so they were they were pretty ticked at him when they when it started. Well, in in the current parlance of of today, people would say they would look at that arrangement and say, "So how did that work out?" Yes, yeah, it, it worked out pretty rough actually. It looks it. that way, yes. And so when he he became president, he he wanted to take on some of the things uh, that uh, Abraham Lincoln had done and other things that he disagreed with. He got into multiple battles uh, with Congress, and Congress ended up passing. Something called the uh, the Tenure of Office Act, uh, which basically made him keep Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. That he couldn't switch the cabinet from Abraham Lincoln. Well, he didn't like Stanton, the Secretary of War, and he fired him. And within a month of him firing him, the House said, "You violated the act that we passed over his veto." But they overrode his veto, and uh, they started impeachment process. They impeached him overwhelmingly in the House. It came to the Senate, and there was great debate. Uh, we don't like his policies. We don't like he's carrying things out. Uh, we don't like his attitude. We don't like him. And uh, he was of another party even. They were mostly Republicans, uh, obviously, in the House and the Senate at that time. Um, but as a Democrat, now president, they just didn't like him And at the end of it. And the Senate had this great debate. Do we impeach someone and remove him from office because we don't like him? Or do we impeach him because he's violated some act? He did violate an act, a bill that we passed, and his name became law. And uh, he ended up staying in office, remaining in office by only a single vote at the end of it. It was so close. Just one vote. Yeah. So this is a remarkable journey to be able to look at our country as we go through this and to be able to see how these things are established uh, over the years. But there's a lot of precedent and much of the process for impeachment has built up since the 1700s, looking at the precedent of the Senate. How did they take it then? Because in the Constitution, it's fairly broad. Uh, but the the Senate has several times stopped and said, let's review how we handle impeachment. They did that around the Richard Nixon uh, impeachment time that never came to them. Uh, but the Rules Committee took time to be able to develop, okay, we haven't looked at the rules of how, the, how we'll handle the impeachment of a president in 100 years. We should brush up on that a little bit. Never used it. And then when it's time for Bill Clinton, then they actually did pull a lot of that up and start using it. So t- talk to a little bit of how the rules have just been formed uh, by the Senate. What are some of those rules? Well, well the rules uh, began to evolve with the uh, Andrew Johnson trial in 1868. And we, we currently have 26 rules for the conduct of impeachment trials. I believe most of them did emanate from the A- Andrew Johnson trial. They remained relatively static uh, throughout the next 100 years uh, until the Senate saw itself uh, with, with the potential of, of an impeachment trial of Richard Nixon. And as the proceedings were, were um, developing in the House of Representatives, the Senate Rules Committee decided uh, perhaps to take a closer look at these impeachment rules. And in 1974, the Rules Committee reported uh, several tweaks to the rules. I don't believe there was anything major uh, that they were proposing. Uh, because the Nixon impeachment ended with his, his resignation, uh, the Senate pretty much uh, remained at status quo ante until it was faced with the next actual impeachment, and that was the impeachment in 1986 of a federal judge, Harry Claiborne from Nevada, who was actually uh, an incarcerated convict. He was a judge who'd been tried and convicted and was incarcerated 
in anticipation of that trial, once again, the Senate Rules Committee looked at the impeachment rules and recommended some, some changes, some tweaks to those rules. And those of us who study these things have looked at uh, some, of, some of the changes and some of the explanations of the changes. And the changes in the explanations were supposed to make matters uh, more clear. Uh, I'm not quite sure they succeeded in that matter. We've, we've looked at some of this material. And uh, as is uh, sometimes the case with respect to Senate procedure, the rules are, are um, confusing and explanations of those rules sometimes lead to, to greater confusion. So when there's confusion, and there will be uh, through the process, uh, there's been some conversation to say uh, the, the members of the Senate, they come into the Senate uh, when it goes into trial mode, and it is a very different mode for the Senate. Uh, at that moment when impeachment, the trial actually begins, and we'll talk about some of the lead up to that. When it begins, the senators, some have said, become jurors at that point. Uh, and they all just sit passively and there, there's jurors. But they're not they're not jurors, literally, at that point. Uh, that was under some dispute for a while, but now they're, it's recognized they're not jurors. They are still senators just making a decision, which means – they're also challenging the chair, and there's been multiple times where there's been an impeachment, uh, and whoever is in the chair at that moment actually uh, overseeing the whole process, uh, their decision's been challenged. There's been a vote of senators saying, no, we disagree with the chair, and they're setting new precedent. Uh, so there's so little press. There is precedent on this, but there's so many unanswered questions. There's still some interaction. There are precedents with respect to, to these rules and procedures. Um, I'd like to say that there are precedents that suggest and portray a straight line of, uh, of, of rationality. Um, if, in fact, that's the case, I'd be uh, rather surprised. Um, we do hear uh, in the current situation, many people continue to refer to senators as jurors. And as you've pointed out, that was actually litigated uh, in 1999 during the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton. And, and the resolution of that um, points out a number of things. A Senate impeachment trial is simply unique. Uh, the Senate is not trying a, a criminal case. The Senate's not trying a civil case. The general rules with respect to civil trials and criminal trials just do not apply. It, it's what we lawyers uh, charge extra to call sui generis. The proceedings are unique. And in 1999, um, Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa made a point of order that one of the House managers in the, in the Clinton impeachment trial, um, um, William Barr uh, from Georgia, was referring to senators as jurors. And he made this, this point of order. And as the um, assistant parliamentarian on duty at the time, I was um, surprised, uh, to say the least, over the years, we've always believed that when a senator likes, uh, wants to make a point of order, it would be in his or her interest to uh, chat with a parliamentarian in advance, to have some sense as to what the advice from the parliamentarian to the presiding officer might be, because in most instances, when the parliamentarian gives advice to the presiding officer, the presiding officer follows that advice. But of course, like everything else in life, there are exceptions. And Senator Harkin accepted. Uh, he did not um, bring his his point of order or his arguments uh, to anybody in the parliamentarian's office in advance. I do think we've touched briefly on the fact that during the trial, there is no debate in order uh, among senators, by individual senators. There are no colloquies. There's no discussion back and forth. And this also played into this, this issue. So Senator Harkin made a point of order 
that uh, senators should not be referred to simply as jurors. And I think ultimately that was his point that, well, maybe we are jurors, but we're more than simply jurors. But if that was his point, he never made that argument to me or to anybody else in the parliamentarian's <laughs> office in but, advance. But, but it is an interesting thing to say. There is no debate. While, while senators sit passively somewhat, taking in all the information, uh, in fact, th- th- one of the interesting uh, features of an impeachment is how it begins each day. And it still runs the same way it has for two, two plus mm-hmm. centuries, uh, that the sergeant at arms will begin by coming and making a proclamation every single day at the start of it by saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Mm-hmm. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial, the articles impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against this fill-in-the-blank name of the United States. Uh, it, it, it's a, it'll, it will be a little jarring, I think, for the American public to be able to turn on their TV and see the uh, sergeant-at-arms saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, on pain of imprisonment, everyone must remain silent. And everybody guessing who's going to be in prison first well, for, I'm absolutely for breaking guess, silence. Well, I'm absolutely guessing that's going to be Lindsey Graham. I, there's, there's no way that he can keep silent for that long. But but it, 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 it does set the feature to just say that the senators are not debating this issue. Literally, when the, the whole process begins, uh, there's a transition where the chief justice of the Supreme Court goes and sits in the chair of the vice president of the United States would normally sit in because the vice president is the president of the Senate in our constitutional system. But now that chair is handed off to the chief justice of the Supreme Court uh, that they're sworn in uh, to be able to do that. And then individuals within the body, we all have to take an oath. Uh, as well, that's a different oath than what we take to become a senator. We're literally taking an oath to be able to then uh, make a decision on an impeachment. Uh, so each person is sworn in on that as well. The desks are physically moved in the Senate uh, to allow more space for a table at the front for the House of Representatives and their team to be able to make their argument why they believe, and the House can pick whoever they want to send to, to come over to make their argument. The president then has a team uh, to be able to, that's at the front as well, and they get the due process of getting a chance to be able to say their side of it. There's a spot for witnesses uh, to be able to come in as well, and then the senators mostly sit in silence. But if we want to ask a question, we typically, unless there's a, a point of order like you had mentioned before, but if we want to be able to ask a question during that process, how would that happen? Under the impeachment rules, the only way in which senators can ask questions is they submit the questions in writing to the chief, well, to the presiding officer in any impeachment trial. And of course, an impeachment trial of the president, uh, the chief justice of the United States must preside. So should there be an impeachment trial of a president, questions that senators wish to ask must be uh, committed to writing and handed to the chief justice. All right. So let me ask this question because I'm going to bounce through some lightning fast ones here because we've got a lot we want to cover and want to honor everyone's time here in the process. But um, if the House impeaches someone, I've heard some people on TV say, well, the House passes bills all the time and the Senate just never takes it up. If the House impeaches the president, their advice is just the Senate should ignore it and say this is ridiculous. We're not even going to take it up. Well, of course, the House passes thousands of bills every year. And the Senate is not obligated to take any of those bills up for consideration. Um, However, impeachment is what we would consider to be a constitutionally mandated uh, action. And the Senate's impeachment rules are are, uh, clear in in that regard. The first rule, and it's written, of course, in in, uh, parliamentarian ease. Whenever the Senate shall receive notice from the House of Representatives that managers are appointed on the part 
on their part to conduct an impeachment against any person and are directed to carry articles of impeachment to the Senate, the Secretary of the Senate shall immediately inform the House of Representatives that the Senate is ready to receive the managers for the purpose of exhibiting such articles of impeachment agreeable to such notice, shall immediately. I'm not aware of any other provision of the Senate rules that says shall immediately. Right. So it, it is it is it is right away. In fact, the the basic principle of in the way that it's set up is it's the next day at one o'clock unless there's unanimous consent across the Senate to be able to shift that then, which that did happen in the Bill Clinton trial. He was impeached in December and the Senate determined not to take it up over Christmas, ho ho ho, and then moved it into January, which ended up being also a new session of Congress. There's lots of, of, of hurdles to be jumped through at that point. Uh, but there was an, an agreement then where they determined the new rules for impeachment in the Senate, including postponing that for a couple of weeks to get into January. Well, you have raised a very interesting aspect of, of this process, uh, the differences between the House and the Senate. The Senate considers itself a continuing body, uh, and the House is not. Uh, the House basically uh, is extinguished at the end of each Congress, and it reconstitutes itself anew at the beginning of the next Congress. The Senate, however with only one-third of its membership uh, up for re-election every two years, is a continuing body. And the Senate considers itself uh, competent to consider articles of impeachment, in this instance adopted in the 105th Congress by the House of Representatives. The Senate was competent to to consider those articles of impeachment at the beginning of the 106th Congress. Right. This is for Bill Clinton, right? Yes, this was for Bill Clinton. And you did mention that uh, the Senate was happy to go on Christmas break uh, and was actually out of session when the House uh, messaged to the Senate articles of impeachment. I believe they came over to the Senate on December 18th uh, of 1998. And the Senate had adjourned. It was gone. Right. Now, the Senate, again, as a continuing body, is always uh, authorized to receive uh, messages from the House of Representatives, in this case, from the President of the United States. And so the Senate was competent to receive the, the articles of impeachment. And if it wanted to, uh, within, its, uh, within its own authority, could have reconvened in the 105th Congress. There are ways of bringing, uh, bringing each House back from an sure. adjournment. Uh, Cooler heads prevailed and said, you know, let's just stay. Let, yeah. Let, yeah. yeah. Let, let, and Christmas let, is, you know, impeachment is one thing. Christmas is another. And, and, there, thing. and there's a very good chance that happens again. If, if the House chooses to vote on impeachment uh, before Christmas this year, I think it'd be very likely the Senate would uh, have to gather and make an agreement uh, that we're not going to start it immediately on Christmas Day uh, to start impeachment. But then they'll have to have an agreement, not only on the rules on the first day that we start. Otherwise, the default is the very next day that we'd begin. That, that's correct. Now, one difference. Uh, in this case is should this happen around the Christmas break, this would be between sessions of the same Congress. Right. With respect to the Clinton trial, even though the Senate was competent to uh, adjudicate articles of impeachment adopted by the House in the previous Congress, I believe the House had to take some action uh, to resurrect – To reaffirm the, that. The, reaffirm, right. resurrect, uh, appoint, reappoint managers on the part of the House – to uh, to prosecute the articles of so, impeachment. So there's been lots of questions as well about witnesses and evidence. Uh, there, there's uh, lots of conversation nationally about, okay, what, what evidence is, is allowable there? Is that the standard federal rules of evidence? Is it a different set of rules? Uh, is it like it would be in a courtroom? Uh, and then also the witnesses that are called, how do you call witnesses and who gets to choose on that? 
Well, every now and then parliamentarians get to, uh, to punt on, on questions. Uh, an impeachment trial is a fascinating thing for those of us uh, who have worked at the Senate. It's the intersection of Senate procedure and a judicial proceeding. As we discussed before, even as a judicial proceeding, it's unique. It's, it's unique in every respect. The, we are fortunate uh, here in the Senate to have an office of legal counsel. Um, we are also fortunate over the years to have the, uh, the good offices of the Chief Justice and, and his, uh, his legal staff. Uh, during the Clinton impeachment trial, the the actors from a staff standpoint were the Senate parliamentarian uh, at the time, Bob Dove, Senate legal counsel, Tom Griffith, who now sits on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist and his staff, and his, uh, his chief of staff was a fellow named Jim Duff, who was just a delight to work with and never once breathed the fact that he was Mr. Basketball for the state of Ohio when he was in high school. And he'd played a little college basketball at a place called the University of Kentucky. He Not was, a bad place to play basketball. He, he was that modest. You would never know. You'd have to drag that out of him. My point being that, that an impeachment trial is the combined efforts of different fields of expertise. The Senate parliamentarian understanding uh, how, how the Senate operates as an institution. Senate legal counsel understanding how trials work. The Chief Justice and his people understanding how trials work and how the, the several branches of the government interact. Right. Um, the current Senate is very fortunate that Elizabeth McDonough, our current parliamentarian, has both, the, well, now 20-plus years of Senate expertise, but she began her career after law school as a trial attorney. So she is another source of expertise uh, with respect to witnesses and evidence and um, and the logistics, right. both both the content and the logistics of summoning witnesses and deciding what it is that, that the Senate wants to hear from these people. So at the end of the day, most witnesses that are called, the ruling is, is this person pertinent to the case? Uh, it can't be just extraneous other mm-hmm. in, the, in the, the typical default is if they have a connection to what is actually in front of us, it typically would be accepted uh, as a witness to be called. But if they don't have pertinence to what's in front of us, then they make that judgment call. Well, that would be up to the Chief Justice, right. and the Chief Justice uh, will receive input from all of the uh, the individuals that I mentioned. And my guess is the Chief Justice uh, is more than competent to rule with or without that uh, right. that staff advice. And at times, it's not just made on the fly. This is not like a, a television where they just make it up and they get a challenge and they just decide on the spot on it. Often they'll mm-hmm. recess, sometimes mm-hmm. even for a day or two, to be able to make a decision, get counsel, and come back and then come back again. Well, as I mentioned before, when when disputed questions of procedure are to be uh, um, handled, it's always best for people to know in advance right. uh, so that uh, reasoned decision-making can take place. It is also interesting as well that uh, the Senate, if they disagree with the decision of the chair, uh, there can be a challenge to the decision of the chair because, again, this is not like a typical courtroom. It's still the Senate. So if there's a determination, this is a witness or a rule of evidence, and the chair makes a ruling on it, in this case it would be Chief Justice Roberts, uh, makes a decision and a ruling on it, senators can challenge that ruling and either go back to precedent, what's been done in the past, or to say this is something unique to it and they're establishing new precedent on it and actually take a vote and to say, no, we're going to allow this or accept it. 
for them to be able to move through the process? Well, if there is a challenge, yes, it, it does come down to a majority vote of the senators. Right. And there were times for Rehnquist where he actually just put it to the Senate and just said, you know, this is this is new. Uh, let's take a vote on it and be able to determine what needs to be done. And, and that's consistent with both the impeachment rules and the Senate standing rules. Uh, our Senate presiding officers are, are, are authorized, uh, if they wish, to allow the Senate to make a decision initially uh, without the input from the chair. Right. So th- there is a bit of a fascinating interplay even that will happen and people will be able to watch and see. The majority of the time, senators will sit silent uh, in the chamber and be able to watch while the argument's happening at the two tables at the front and they're making their case to the senators. Uh, but then there's also kind of an interplay back and forth as far as what the rules will be on that. There, there's also a, a rumor that's out there about, okay, the Senate could decide not to impeach the president. They could just choose some other uh, penalty that they would put on the president from there. T- tell us a little bit about that. Well, we've heard over the years uh, there was a suggestion during um, Bill Clinton's trial um, that the Senate uh, might instead uh, vote to censure the president. Uh, there is no basis for for that kind of activity within an impeachment trial. Right. Uh, we also heard uh, a suggestion or an argument that the Senate could impose the second of the two possible penalties uh, for uh, an impeached and convicted official, and that's a disqualification from ever holding an office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Um, We considered that argument to be without merit. Um, that is a potential second penalty. So that would, in this case, uh, there are some people that have this rumor out there saying, well, the Senate could just say by simple majority even uh, at that point, they could just vote and say this person's not eligible to run for office in the future. And since President Trump is running again for office uh, this next November, that they would just say, well, he's just not eligible to be able to run for that. That's his penalty. Uh, Your statement is that's not consistent with the Constitution. Well, it's not consistent with... uh, Certainly, my interpretation, and I believe this issue was was raised during Bill Clinton's trial, and and as is the case uh, so often, decided um, below the level of of a um, of a public precedent that the advice uh, was given from the parliamentarians' office that this was not an option, right. that disqualification might occur, but could only occur as a second consequence of conviction and conviction by two-thirds vote. So two-thirds vote to actually convict, then after that, then they could also vote to add one more penalty on it, and that would be to say that you also can't run for office in the future. That's correct. Two-thirds vote to convict. The result of that, when the Senate pronounces judgment, is that the impeached official, the convicted official, is at that moment removed from office. Right. And then the Senate can decide whether or not to impose the second penalty disqualification from ever holding office again, and that's the vote of a simple majority. Okay. So let me get down to the final deliberation because I want to be able to wrap this up with us. Um, When we talk about uh, the Senate making their decision, uh, again, this is not going to be TV drama in that sense, which you would see on some one-hour show to be able to come in and out. When the Senate's deliberating on something this big, how is that typically done in an impeachment? What would you anticipate that would look like for the final deliberation? Well, that's been a matter of some um, dispute and discussion. The Senate deliberates in private. There, over the years, senators have uh, some senators have pushed back against that, but the interpretation of the Senate's impeachment rules uh, have led to the the guidance 
from the Senate parliamentarian to every presiding officer that the rules of the Senate require that deliberations take place behind closed doors. This, this was an issue in 1999. Um, the, uh, the organizational uh, resolutions with respect to the, to the Clinton trial anticipated uh, some attempt on the part of senators to, to uh, have the doors opened uh, for the trial. The advice had gone out that the doors must be closed and that if senators wished to have the doors open for deliberation, that the impeachment rules would actually have to be suspended. And in the Senate, a vote on suspension of the rules is a vote of two-thirds. Once again, this was disputed back and forth. The Chief Justice asked our advice, and we advised the Chief Justice that, that the default posture was that the doors had to be closed. Um, he, he had accepted that advice uh, at one point uh, during the trial, and later on we had heard that um, uh, either a particular senator who was somewhat persuasive or a group of, of similar-minded similar senators who wanted the doors to be open as a matter of course had uh, moved the chief justice away from uh, what we had thought was the time-honored and settled position that the doors had to remain closed unless uh, two-thirds voted uh, to suspend the rules to open the doors. We ultimately were able to convince Chief Justice Rehnquist that, in fact, the doors must be closed. And so one of the precedents, uh, one of the enunciated precedents from the Chief Justice during the Clinton trial, a precedent that was enunciated, I believe, on February 9th of 1999, either February 8th or February 9th, was that on the advice of the parliamentarian, and presiding officers like to say that when they're a little nervous about the, the ruling they're about to give. On the advice of the parliamentarian, the chair looks at the, the somewhat ambiguous rules and resolves the ambiguity in favor of uh, the requirement that when the Senate deliberates on an impeachment trial, on the articles of impeachment, it does so behind closed doors unless the Senate affirmatively votes by two-thirds vote to suspend that rule to, to permit the doors to yeah, be we'll open. open it up. So it'll probably be a private deliberation in all likelihood, on the, as, it, as it is typically in the past. I would think so. So the trial itself uh, for the Bill Clinton was about five weeks long. Um, a typical trial uh, for an impeachment for a president obviously takes a lot of time for the House to be able to make their case, the, the White House to be able to make their case uh, on behalf of the president, uh, witnesses to be able to come forward and be, be heard and be questioned by both sides. Uh, this trial, in all likelihood, if it comes to the Senate, and we don't know if it is, but if it comes to the Senate, probably four or five weeks long as well, you would expect? I would think so. And, and the Senate does conduct legislative business. Uh, the rules require the Senate to resume the trial at noon every day. And so the rules understand that the Senate needs to be able to to meet, to conduct its normal legislative business as, as well. Yeah, yes. so typically in the morning. So whether that be um, legislation or whether that be nominations, whatever, may do, do that in the morning and then trial in the afternoon and continue on until it's done um, uh, up to a month or however long that it actually takes. But as it took for Bill Clinton five weeks, uh, it could take that long again and then the Senate makes a decision. That wouldn't surprise me. Alan, I really appreciate you joining us uh, for this dialogue. There's a lot more that we could go mm -hmm. into, um, but I, I encourage folks to be able to reach out to our office. We can send them additional information if they want more information, be able to read even deeper on this, be able to go into the details. But I think this is helpful to folks that want to be able to know if, if an impeachment comes to the Senate, and we don't know if it does, if it comes to the Senate, 
uh, what's going to happen. And at least people will be a little bit braced uh, the first day when the sergeant-at-arms walks in the door and says, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, and starts <laughs> kicking off a very historic process. Well, if it comes to that, uh, it, it will be fascinating. And um, those of us who have lived through these trials in the past uh, understand how interesting and how difficult this process can be. It's incredibly painful to the nation. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's incredibly painful to the nation. And so that's one of the, one of the areas that I remind people all the time that as a nation, we've gone through hard things before and we do it best when we do it together uh, to be able to walk through any differences. So uh, thank you again for joining us in this one. Uh, we'll continue to be able to get information out to people as much as they choose to do. They can always reach out to us on our website, langford.senate.gov. Uh, if you want to be able to subscribe to the Breakdown other platforms, that's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Uh, you can keep up to date with what's happening on any of our social media platforms at Senator Langford, and uh, we'll try to get you as much information as we possibly can. I hope folks enjoy the holidays uh, as everyone's kind of got a second eye uh, looking towards Washington, D.C. to be able to happen. What Right now, I hope they can keep a primary focus on their families and, and all that's happening in the season right now as well. And have a wonderful holiday season as well. Do that as well. Thank you, Alan, very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.